Welcome to Bed Crime Stories Podcast. I'm your host, T. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, bed crimers. As always, I wish you the best. To anyone new here, a warm welcome. Thank you for checking out my channel. Let me just ask that after listening to or watching this video, if you learned something or enjoyed it, please do me a favor and smash that like button. Now, let's dig in. Henry VIII had 200 people working in his kitchens at Hampton Court. Among the 200 were cooks, scullery maids. Ah, oh, those poor scullery maids. They always have the worst gig of the lot. I'm basing that on Downton Abbey, of course, where the butler and the housekeeper are always telling the scullery maids to stay downstairs. What do you think you're doing up here, Daisy? Get down to the kitchen! Henry VIII also had carvers, bakers, butchers, and stewards. Because so many people were touching his food on any given day, the king was, well, a little bit paranoid that someone might slip some poison in his vittel and his drink. Apparently, poison in wine was particularly dangerous and difficult to detect. So rather than throw all care to the wind and just dig in, Henry VIII employed tasters. And maybe their job was actually worse than the scullery maid because they had to taste each dish before it reached his royal mouth. It's hard to know how effective this method could have been, though, because apparently poison, even mega doses of arsenic, don't necessarily work instantly. So it's not like in the movies where one sip and a victim makes a funny face that says, I knew you never liked me. How dare you, you son of a gun, grabs his throat and accordions down to the ground with a thump. Apparently, the length of time required for the first symptoms of poisoning to appear, like abdominal pain, vomiting, and diarrhea, varies greatly depending on a person's height, weight, genetics, who knew, general health, and how much food is already in the stomach. Food in the tum-tum slows the poison's absorption. You're probably wondering why I'm going on about Henry VIII and arsenic. Well, I gotta say that that Utah mom, Corey Richens, accused of allegedly putting five times the lethal dose of fentanyl in her husband Eric's Moscow mule is gnawing at me. Have you ever heard the phrase a femme fatale? Well, some clever person came up with fentanyl fatale for Corey Richens. It's so hard for me to reconcile her soccer mom looks with a type of villainess that you'd expect to be deliberately lacing her husband's drink. But if there's one thing we should all know by now, it's that people with evil intentions and a total lack of empathy come in all shapes and sizes. We've learned that Corey allegedly took out life insurance policies in the millions against Eric's life, and in fact, she also allegedly had policies for her three young sons. You have to wonder why she had life insurance on her kids, especially after considering what happened to Eric. 
Eric. It would appear that if she really is guilty of doing this, then she had zero feelings for him, a man who was the father of her three children and who reportedly was very supportive of her dreams and helped her start a real estate business. If she did this, she clearly had no regard for how such a loss was going to affect her kids and forever scar them. She even told the police who showed up after she dialed 911 that she'd been in one of her son's bedrooms because he was having, quote, night terrors. If she's guilty, how dare she talk about night terrors when she just doled out the worst real-life terror any child can experience? Let's imagine for the sake of this discussion, that Corey is found guilty of this crime. You have to wonder what happened in her life to make her capable of such a cruel act. I don't believe babies are born with murderous desires. I'm of the opinion it's more the result of nurture than nature when a human being develops into a cold-hearted killer. I found an article on the Psychology Today website called A Psychological Profile of a Poisoner by Dr. Joni E. Johnston, who is a clinical forensic psychologist, private investigator, author, and host of the YouTube channel and podcast Unmasking a Murderer. In the article, Dr. Johnston talks about the personality of the criminal poisoner. She said that contrary to popular belief, the majority of convicted poisoners are men and their victims are almost always women. And perpetrators of this particular crime rarely cross racial lines when they decide to send a victim to an early grave. But apparently that's true with other methods as well when it comes to murder. What it means is Caucasians tend to poison other Caucasians and African Americans tend to poison other African Americans. Another interesting statistic, on average, a poisoner is five to ten years younger than his or her victim. And when it comes to their careers, poisoners often work in the medical or caretaking fields where they have easy access to the substances needed. And the vast majority of poisoners do in people they know. So a spouse, a child, a friend. Based on published cases of convicted poisoners, experts have come to the following conclusions. 1. Killing someone with poison requires a lot of careful planning and subterfuge. Because of this, poisoners tend to be cunning, sneaky, and creative. We've heard that Corey's housekeeper is the person who supplied her with two separate purchases of 15 to 30 fentanyl pills prior to Eric's death. We also heard that Corey did a lot of Google searches of very suspicious topics like, can an autopsy show that somebody was poisoned? This crime appears to have been planned over a period of time. A lot of thought went into this. I mean, she picked fentanyl, a drug that's killing so many people these days. I don't think that's a coincidence. Two, in general, poisoners tend to avoid physical confrontations and instead use verbal and emotional manipulation to get what they want. I would guess that Corey Richens 
is a master manipulator. Anyone who allegedly knocks off her husband and then has the audacity to write a children's book about grief and then ring up her local news station to get on the show to promote the book? I mean, that's the work of a grand master manipulator. We also watched as Corey cried in a recent court hearing. She put her hands to her face, she grabbed a tissue, but I didn't see any tears actually flowing down her face. And in fact, she almost smirks at one point right before she puts her face down. This lady seems to have had no qualms about allegedly serving up a cocktail made up mostly of fentanyl to her husband while her young children were sleeping in their nearby bedrooms. I mean, that's some scary stuff. Those tears in court are either the result of her realizing she's not going to get away with this, or she had something in her eyes that's making them tear up. Three, convicted poisoners also tend to have a sense of inadequacy for which they compensate through a scorn for authority, a strong need for control, wish fulfillment fantasies, and a self-centered, exploitative, interpersonal style. They were either spoiled as a child or raised in an unhappy home. The article said, quote, Some experts liken the poisoner personality to an incorrigible child whose immature desire for his or her own way leads him or her to try to control and manipulate the world. It's as if the poisoner never grew up and is determined to take what she or he wants, just as a child would from a candy store, end quote. This one really seems to hit the bullseye. We heard Corey closed on a $2 million mansion the day after Eric died, and she even had a party that night to celebrate it. Biatch is cold. By all accounts, Eric was opposed to this purchase and was not planning to help her buy it. Money and the desire to get her way seemed to be behind the crime. In Eric's sister, Katie Richens Benson's lawsuit, which seeks more than $13 million from Corey and her realty company, several claims are made against Corey. The claims include money theft, fraudulent credit card charges, misappropriation for using Eric's likeness in her children's book, and more. According to the lawsuit, Corey took possession of Eric's credit cards without permission and also took money from his bank accounts. The lawsuit also states that Corey's realty business was about $6 million in debt, and its bank account was overdrawn by $22,000. This lady was off the charts irresponsible and conniving, if all of this is true. Back to the traits of poisoners. The article said poisoners tend to be developmentally stunted, and they view other people without empathy, and the poisoner's internal compass is guided by greed or lust rather than morals. The article said, quote, and because the poison is often not detected initially, the power and control poisoners experience with success tends to increase his or her confidence 
in future endeavors. I mean, writing a children's book about grief when you just allegedly knocked off your husband seems like a very brash thing to do. I have to believe that she thought she was going to get away with the crime. The article also said that when it comes to motive, poisoners usually poison others for money, usually in the form of life insurance. Bingo! Jealousy is another motive, such as a lover's triangle, and we're going to have to wait and see if there is another person in Corey's love life. She was said to be texting with someone during the period after Eric drank the Moscow Mule. That made me think right away that there could be another guy in the picture, or maybe another gal, hey, you never know. Other motives include removing an obstacle, as in removing a person be it a spouse or a child, revenge, sadism, as in make the other person suffer, conviction, as in political motives, and we often see that in people who dare to criticize Vladimir Putin. Tragically, one out of five deaths by poisoning is never solved, meaning the person who poisoned them is never tracked down. This makes it hard to draw a more solid psychological profile of the typical poisoner, and those who've been caught and convicted are the only ones who can enlighten us. The article said that the people who've been caught have tended to be clever, sneaky, emotionally immature, methodical, and self-centered, and many of them are amazingly skilled at pretending to be something they're not. A doting wife, a caring nurse, a devoted friend. If Corey goes to trial for this crime, I think we're going to see her really trying hard to keep up any and all masks that she's been wearing. And I don't mean paper masks until the next time on Bed Crime Stories. Did you learn anything? Did you enjoy this? If so, please smash that like button and subscribe to the channel. Bling or friend, talking about loss with kids can be a tricky subject. Joining us now is author of Are You With Me? Corey Richens to share her three C's to helping kids cope with grief. And Corey, I want to start with your story. What happened in your personal life? So my husband passed away unexpectedly last year. So it's March 4th was a one year anniversary for us. And um, he was 39. It completely took us all by shock. Um, and we have three little boys, 10, nine and six. And, um, you know, we kind of, my kids and I kind of wrote this book on the different emotions and grieving processes that we've experienced last year and you know hoping that it can kind of help other kids you know um, deal with this and kind of you know find happiness some some way or another and to make sense and process I'm yes. sure and I'm yeah. sure you felt that going mm -hmm. through and trying to explain it and articulate it for you and your boys yes exactly exactly and so I've done you know I'm new to all of this, so kind of doing all, you know, research and reading books and things to try and understand, you know, not only how to grieve as 
a widow as a, as a wife, but also, you know, with my kids, how to help them, how to help them understand what just happened. And um, what I have kind of found is, as I mentioned, it's kind of the three C's is how I has visualize it. And it's, you know, um, connection, continuity and care. And it's, you know, making sure connection is the one major one and making sure that their spirit is always alive in your home, you know, and memories are always brought up and doing things that your loved ones love to do, whether it's riding bikes or their favorite dinner and just constantly, you know, talking about them. And and Corey, do you mention at dinner, here's dad or dad would like this meal or dad yes. would, yeah. let's bring dad on a bike ride. Yeah, exactly. And it's, you know, explaining to my kids just because he's not present here with us physically, that doesn't mean he, his presence isn't here with us and he's doing these things with us. And he's, you know, here for birthdays and he's here for Christmas and, you know, and it's just comforting to them to know that, you know, they're not living this life alone. Like mm -hmm. dad is still here. It's just in a different way, a different way. Well, I opened up your book and one of the first pages I saw is a little boy. It looks like he's standing in a hallway at school and he's mm -hmm. saying, are you still here? Yes. Yeah. And it's, you know, and that was like the first day of school and, you know, all the nerves that kids face on the first day of school with new, you know, and just hoping, you know, dad, like walk with me, like help me get through today, 